as a global economy, we're catching up to what we need to do. And we don't say that to worry people. In fact, we view it as a positive. It means there is almost endless opportunity for us and others to pursue both very attractive growth and decarbonization opportunities around the world today. Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast that explores how the firm is investing in the backbone of the global economy. What is that exactly? The things you rely on every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on site where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. In our first season, we're taking a deep dive into Brookfield's mission to power the global transition to net zero carbon emissions. Climate change is the biggest challenge facing the planet. Our very existence depends on discovering what works in clean energy and how to bring it to scale. But the world has not been investing enough to solve this problem, and energy systems have become vulnerable to all kinds of shocks, as we've seen this year. To get on track for net zero carbons, spending on clean energy and infrastructure will need to triple over the next seven years. As the International Energy Agency has put it, The solution is not just to diversify away from a single energy commodity. We need to change the nature of the system itself, all while keeping it affordable and secure. Brookfield's roots run deep, from hydroelectric plants in the 1980s to what is now one of the world's largest renewable energy portfolios. This season, we'll pull back the curtain on the largest private fund dedicated to powering the transition to a net-zero carbon economy. We'll also get a first-hand look at the new policy-driven industrial revolution that is reducing climate risk. Some of these initiatives you may have heard of. Others, maybe not. We'll examine how they all work, why they matter, and how they all fit together. For our first episode, I spoke with Mark Carney and Connor Teske. Mark is a vice chair of Brookfield Asset Management and head of transition investing. Connor is a managing partner head of Brookfield's Renewable Power and Transition Group, and Chief Executive Officer of Brookfield Renewable Partners. Mark is a longtime advocate for managing and reducing the risks of climate change. He is currently the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance and co-chair for the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Mark also served as the Governor of the Bank of England from 2013 to 2020 and as Governor of the Bank of Canada from 2008 to 2013. Mark's years in global finance gave him a unique perspective. He could see that climate risk wasn't just an environmental concern, but also a looming economic and humanitarian crisis. Mark, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your role at Brookfield and what brought you to the business. I've known and admired Brookfield for over a quarter century. I've known Bruce Flatt and the other senior management of the firm for at least that long. And I've admired them because they are operators, operators in the true sense of whether it's real estate, infrastructure, renewable power, they're investors, they've got global scale, 
but they also manage businesses and build businesses. If I then add the next piece of the puzzle, which uh, I spend a lot of time in central banking and global financial regulation, and one of the jobs in that role, particularly at the Bank of England, was to identify the looming risks in the global economy. And uh, climate change is, in many respects, the biggest risk and a growing risk that we're all facing. And so I wanted to do something about it, not just manage the risk, but be part of the solution. You put the two together, Brookfield with its global reach, scale, capital, operating expertise and commitment to address this problem, to be part of the solution. And Connor, let's bring you in here. Brookfield has obviously taken a very long view on renewables. It's a big part of the company's history, big part of their investing strategy. Talk a little bit about that and how that legacy influences the investments that you're making today. We've been investing in renewables before they were called renewables. 25 years ago, we had a pure play hydro business. When wind became a large and attractive opportunity, we used what we learned in hydro to become a global player in wind. We then followed suit with solar. And more recently with other technologies like offshore wind and distributed generation and battery storage. And really our evolution into becoming more of a decarbonization company and investing more in transition investments is just the continuation of that same dynamic. We're using all the experience from decades of being a renewables operator, knowledge of power markets, knowledge of clean energy technologies, operating expertise, access to capital, global reach, and applying those to a much broader, deeper decarbonization investment universe When we think about decarbonization in the big picture, a key concept to keep in mind is the carbon budget. That's the amount of carbon dioxide we can emit within a certain period of time to prevent further global warming. Just like with our own personal or business budgets, if we go over that number, we run into trouble. Which means that finding and scaling decarbonization solutions is absolutely essential. The science is absolutely clear that the degree of global warming and the frequency of extreme weather events and the severity of those extreme weather events are all a function of how much carbon and other greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere. And if we're going to limit the most severe effects of climate change, in other words, if we're going to keep the temperature increases to around one and a half degrees or less relative to when the world started burning coal and steam power and other things. At current levels of uh, production of carbon, we have less than 10 years on that carbon budget if we keep that pace. So what is necessary is to start to bend that curve. This is really a crucial decade to move forward. And one of the things that I think Brookfield has helped shape is to focus on all aspects of the solution. So sometimes things get put into categories of black and white or green and brown, I guess, in the cases of climate change. And actually, we're focused on 50 shades of green. We're focused on a steel company and getting their emissions down through their own solutions. We're focused on helping automakers build out electric vehicle platforms, battery capacity, grids, etc. The traditional auto producers aren't going to change absolutely overnight, but they make big strides this decade. And that's where we can put our expertise in capital to work and really, as we say, bend that curve, expand that carbon budget, and then deliver the things that people want ultimately, which is a more sustainable planet and economy and a greener economy and brighter future for their children and grandchildren. Well, I love that 50 shades of green. When you write the book on decarbonization, you got a title there. <laughs> Better trade market. So, Mark, you've obviously been very involved in the global diplomatic efforts around all of this. 
What are some key things that are going on that are going to have an impact on companies and investors that we need to be keeping an eye on? The big news is that in the last couple of years, over 190 countries covering something like 90% plus of the world's emissions, so all the carbon that's going out there, they've agreed that the world has to get to net zero. So the first thing is knowing where we're headed. Then the second thing the companies need to think about is, well, what are countries putting in place in terms of climate policies in order to help get there. So is there certain regulations, for example, in Europe, uh, the UK, Canada as well, you can't sell a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle after 2035. So that means a lot of investment today. Also very importantly, regulation of the financial system. And one of the things that's happening in the financial system is that the authorities are saying, listen, we want minimum disclosure, you know, certain levels of disclosure about how much carbon do the companies you invest in and lend to, how much carbon are they producing? Do they have plans in order to address that? Can we develop new markets? Uh, this would be the third thing, new markets that are part of the solution, maybe for carbon offsets or credit, things like that. There's over $130 trillion now of balance sheet that in the last year across major banks and insurance companies, asset managers, pension funds, et cetera, that have said, look, we're going to do our best to shift those balance sheets over time to be part of the solution, to be part of this net zero journey. And that provides a huge tailwind. How will we know if it's enough, if we're making enough progress? And there's been some talk around in the climate community that net zero is masking things that companies aren't doing enough, or maybe we don't know what they're doing. How do we gauge that? It seems like that's squishy at this point. The area we're working on and really focusing our efforts on is the transition. These are hard numbers. You can measure carbon emissions. And our commitment is we're not just going to measure those, but we're going to track them and we're going to get them down over the next several years of our investment such that they're consistent with what the world has to do. There's zero chance we end up doing too much in the short to medium term. As a global economy, we're catching up to what we need to do. And we don't say that to worry people. In fact, we view it as a positive. It means there is almost endless opportunity for us and others to pursue both very attractive growth and decarbonization opportunities around the world today. And Mark, let me just, if I could, have you define what you mean when you talk about transition investing. What are you talking about there? In many respects, that's about going to where the emissions are. So if I characterize it this way, there's certain investments that are straight up, we're building low or no emission power. It's clean energy. It's displacing dirty energy or high emission energy. And that's clearly a central part of the transition. But then the second class of things is working with companies and helping them to get their emissions down such that they're aligning with a pathway towards net zero. So in other words, if any of us woke up tomorrow and we're running a major steel company or an airline, we can't flip a green switch and all of a sudden have zero emissions. But we can look at all our emissions, triage them, if you will, make a prioritization of what we can get down first and invest and move that down in a way that's consistent with those pathways. I asked Mark why that transition component is so critical. 
It's critical for two reasons, candidly. One is those are the hard emissions to get down, and so let's tackle some of the hard problems. But secondly, from a financial perspective, often those are the companies whose valuation is beaten down a bit, or there's an opportunity to create much more value in helping them solve this issue and get them on that pathway. So both legs of this are important, the pure green and these other shades of green as we're helping them transition. We are very disciplined about marking our homework. In other words, what is the bar that we have to reach? And we use external science-based pathways and other approaches to make sure that when we bend that curve with those hard-to-emit companies, that we bend it far enough. Congress recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Joe Biden described as, quote, the most significant climate legislation in American history. I asked Mark and Connor how they think the IRA will impact Brookfield's activities. Yeah, it's huge. And it was almost instant. I would say it's simply a lot of dollars of support and the scale is helpful. But there's two other things we would highlight. One, the benefits of that policy are available to anyone. And two, that policy is very easy to understand. And how does it actually play out in our business? Well, the good news for us is the U.S. was already our largest market on a global basis. More than 50% of our assets are in the U.S. It's going to turbocharge the development of new additional decarbonization capacity in the United States. And the impact is absolute. We saw it right away in our business. The other thing that's happening literally as we speak is in other countries, they're looking at the incentives in the IRA and saying, wait a minute, maybe we should match those. And so this is the ideal race for the top type approach. So I think there'll be benefits, whether it's in Canada, where they're looking at it, Europe, the UK, etc., trying to make sure that this acceleration really gathers pace. We've always wanted our energy supplies to be cheap, clean, and secure. But in the past, we could only get two out of three. If it was clean, it wasn't cheap. If it was cheap, it wasn't clean. And the war in Ukraine underscores how difficult and fleeting energy security can be. But it seems like now we're coming into a time when it is possible to have all three. I asked Mark and Connor how the landscape looks different today than it did 20 years ago. Well, I think a few things have changed. One is as a consequence of early adopters and investors like Brookfield and others, just the costs and the competitiveness of renewables has really shifted. In most, certainly developed markets, renewable power is far and away the cheapest power to build and operate. So it's the right economic decision before you get to the climate elements of that. And of course, once you've built it, you have no supply chain risk. You have no geopolitical risk. Nobody owns the wind and the sun. And ultimately, when hydrogen comes in, the hydrogen's virtually everywhere. I think the other thing that's changed is in the nearer term, we've had a very sharp and horrific reminder of the importance of energy security, energy being used as a weapon in this unjust war. And that's just a challenge with hydrocarbons. So it does mean some short-term adjustment on the hydrocarbon side and production to provide greater energy security. But it has absolutely accelerated the deployment and the policy environment and the support for clean energy. So at the same time we're trying to build out this capability, we're facing some pretty tough challenges on the global front in terms of the economy, you know, with inflation, higher interest rates. You mentioned the geopolitical risk that's affecting energy markets. What impact does that have on the pace of change as we try to work through this transition? 
in the very short term, particularly in Europe and parts of the emerging world, they're scrambling for generation because there's been this big displacement in Europe from Russian energy, and then it has a spillover effect into the emerging world. In most cases, that alternative energy has higher emissions. A case where it doesn't, by the way, is in nuclear, where we've seen decisions being taken in Europe to extend nuclear. And we do think very much that nuclear is part of the solution here more broadly, not just short term, but longer term. But the broader point that this crisis is underscoring is, look, I want something, as you said a moment ago, that's cheap, clean and secure and that's renewables, the cost is lower once it's running than conventional energy. And it's much less volatile. It doesn't bounce up and down like the price of global oil or global gas. Europe is going to increase the rate at which they build out wind and solar by five times over the course of the next six years. That's a massive expansion. Even if they do half of that, it is a major expansion. The response to the near-term energy crisis and inflation is to go for the solutions that are cheap, clean, and secure, and that's where we're operating. So, Connor, Mark mentioned nuclear power. Let's talk a little bit more, since he brought it up, about the role that nuclear is going to play in the transition, and especially looking at what's happening in Europe, where there's a lot of different things going on around nuclear power at the moment, it seems. Yeah, it's pretty simple in our minds. There is no credible net zero plan anywhere that doesn't include a significant and growing amount of nuclear power generation versus what the world has today. It benefits from all the same drivers as wind, solar, and hydro. It benefits from huge tailwinds around decarbonization. It is a solution to energy security. It is very easy to store nuclear fuel for a very long period of time, unlike hydrocarbons that need to be imported on an ongoing basis. We believe nuclear has a very attractive growth runway in front of it. And we view that growth as a prerequisite to that green, clean, net zero electricity grid. As you guys often do, you put your money where your mouth is. You've recently partnered with another company to buy Westinghouse. So that's kind of a sign that you're taking this seriously. Absolutely. We could not be more thrilled about this transaction. Westinghouse services approximately half the global nuclear power generation reactors. And it's Westinghouse technology in a little over half the global nuclear reactors around the world. We view this company specifically as absolutely critical to the transition. I wanted to ask you about something else you meant. You talked a little bit about hydropower, and it seems like hydro has come under some scrutiny recently because of climate change. It's had a bigger impact with droughts and things like that, especially in China we've seen. How do you see that business going forward with regards to a warmer climate? If you own hydros in good locations that are well-managed, they are more valuable today than they've ever been before, and they're going to be even more valuable in the future. It's because they provide grid-stabilizing services to global electricity grids. They provide that green, clean baseload power, and they're increasingly scarce. They are more expensive to build than wind and solar. So as wind and solar scale up, hydro is not going to grow as quickly. So those services they can provide become increasingly in demand. Okay. Well, let's talk about real solutions here to climate change. Both of you guys can weigh in on this. Is it consumer behavior? Is it corporate initiatives? Is it industrial transformation? I mean, what is the answer here? Where should we focus in looking for a solution? 
I think the reality of addressing climate change is it's all of the above. Part of this starts with whether it's consumer behavior or just what people want. Candidly, people want this sorted out. They don't necessarily know how to get it sorted out, but they want their governments to have a plan and companies to have a plan and to be moving in the right direction. The momentum is there in terms of the objective. And then, as you say, what we've got to do is to make progress. And that's what we're doing. Just to put some of this in context, Connor and his team over the years built up a portfolio and it's 23 gigawatts of operating assets. What we've developed in the pipeline is almost five times that amount, over 100 gigawatts. That's enough to take care of all the annual emissions of a country as big as Sweden or to power 15 million homes. So the numbers start to get pretty big. They're going to get only bigger from there. We have to make some new technologies, particularly like hydrogen. And we're already doing this with carbon capture, but make those economic and scale them up. Then if we're going to get all the way there to where the world wants to get, we need some of these breakthrough technologies or these cutting edge technologies to be able to work at scale. And that sort of starts to take effect maybe later in next decade, maybe in the 2040s, maybe sooner if things move fast. And small modular reactors and nuclear would be an example. Direct air capture, in other words, taking carbon right out of the air at scale and putting it in the ground would be another example. Sustainable aviation fuel is a third. So you can kind of break it up into blocks. It does, though, start with what people want. And the fact that people generally want this sorted out, it's kind of our job to figure out how to do it and how to do it at scale. For a long time, the governments had been kind of the lone wolf voice in the room. And then corporates got in maybe five to seven years ago. Amazon's a great example. They've set very ambitious targets that come into place as early as 2025 and deeper targets by 2030 to support their business entirely with renewable power. And you can imagine that is a massive lift. Amazon not only has a huge amount of data centers and data center capacity around the world today, but that business is growing very, very rapidly. So the need to supply those data centers with green power is growing equally rapidly as well. And we've partnered with Amazon on a global basis to provide huge amounts of green power to their business around the world. They are a great example of a leading customer taking this seriously. But they're not the only one, and hopefully we're going to continue to see more and more going forward. If I'm a business leader and I have the motivation, but I'm unsure of how to execute on this, what advice would you have for me in terms of making this transition? What are some of the common challenges I'm going to have to overcome? That sort of thing. Well, the first step is call your local Brookfield Renewable contact and (laughs) and we'll, we'll start from there. But I'll tie it back to a point that we made earlier. And this is I would sometimes say is an unfair misconception about our business and about renewable power and decarbonization solutions. These are not nascent. Wind, solar, green power, these are incredibly mature, stable, cost-effective solutions to decarbonization. And one comment that we like to make is it does not matter which sector of the economy that your business participates in. You could be a tech company, a consumer products company, an industrial, an energy company. Every business consumes electricity. And if you can consume cleaner electricity that produces less carbon, that puts your emissions down. And the reason why that's such an easy starting point is corporate PPAs, the process of procuring that green power, are very well-trodden path. No wheel needs to be recreated there. 
Green power costs the same, if not less, than other forms of power. So not only are you going to decarbonize, you're going to save money. And then carbon emissions avoided, carbon emissions reduced through the procurement of green power are very easy to track. And that is why that is the first step for almost every corporate around the world. It is such low-hanging fruit. And that's where we always start the conversation. And then we move to other decarbonization solutions. That might be carbon capture for an energy company. That might be EV charging for an auto company. That might be energy efficiency for a real estate company. But the starting place is the same. And then we go to a solution that tends to be more industry or business specific from there. Obviously, this is a very large and daunting challenge. But when you look out there, Mark, what gives you hope? What do you see as signs of progress that are being made on the decarbonization effort? Yeah, I think it's a big challenge, but it's also a straightforward challenge. We know that the climate is being changed because of the emission of carbon and other greenhouse gases. What's the cheapest to get down? How quickly can I do that? And shining a light on that and that process actually helps businesses, entrepreneurs, innovators to look at, okay, what are the more thorny problems that we need to solve 10 years from now or 20 years from now? And let's start working on those now because we'll get the big returns. Now people are looking to deal with the issue. So it's the best companies, others will fall in their way. Brookfield's been there early in terms of transition finance. More will follow this become a mainstream business. And then what we'll do is we'll just keep pushing it into new technologies, new geographies, new levels of scale. And it is a very, very large problem, pervasive problem, but you chip away on it each day and it starts to become more manageable. So Connor, what are some areas you're most enthusiastic about? When the world looks to tackle these big issues, economics always have a role to play. These decarbonization solutions represent very commercial, attractive risk-adjusted return investments. We're seeing this within our business, that there's tremendous opportunities to deploy capital in this space at very attractive risk-adjusted returns, as well as push the global economy towards net zero. When that dynamic exists, we're going to continue to see more capital attracted to the space, which is going to accelerate our ability to address these challenges. We talk about technological change that is required to address some of these challenges. And sometimes that can sound like a hope and a prayer, and we hope it gets done in the next decade. But let's talk about solar. Ten years ago, solar was very expensive. It required huge government subsidies. Today, it is the cheapest form of bulk electricity production in every major market around the world. And that is why there is so much solar being installed in displacing more carbon-intensive forms of power production. We are going to figure out what the solar of the next decade is, and that's going to represent a huge part of the solution. And as Mark mentioned, the decade after that, we're going to find another one or another two or another three decarbonization solutions. So every stakeholder is aligned on this. The best minds are aligned on it. All the capital is being attracted to this sector. There is a lot to be excited about. Big job, but a lot to be excited about. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Mark and Connor for sharing their perspective on the clean energy transition. The next few episodes will explore some of the technologies that are leading this effort, including green development and industrial decarbonization. Next week, we'll be discussing power purchase agreements, or PPAs, a valuable tool that helps companies achieve their decarbonization goals. We'll be joined by Stephen Gallagher, Brookfield's Chief Commercial Officer for Renewable in the U.S., 
and Michael Daschle, Senior Vice President of Operations at Brookfield Properties. Stephen and Michael are involved in some of the world's most interesting and unique renewable energy deals, so they bring a wealth of expertise in this area. Audiation.